turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we pray that you would help us to understand more and more the the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray as well, Lord, that you would give us not just insight into the matter, but that you would give us a a feeling of what it is, Uh, that we would enter into the joy of your salvation, that we would know fully the peace of God that, that you have promised to all those who look to Christ by faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, um, I don't remember which relative, but some older man that somehow related to me loosely, I can't remember, um, who had a bunch of large, very old bills that were sort of crumpling that were Confederate currency. And I remember... Um, they smelled weird because they were really old, you know, in that sense. It's, it's amazing what you remember as a child. But um, anyway, he had a number of them, and I'm not sure whatever happened to them. But I, I looked it up the other day, and if you have a, a $50 denomination of Confederate money that was printed in 1861, it's worth about $3,000 today. I don't know whether his was worth anything given the condition that it was in, but it's crazy given the fact that it's $3,000 today considering that the great-grandfather who originally had that money, for him it was worthless, absolutely worthless. By the end of the war, it, 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 was, it was not even worth a penny. Most of you know when the southern states uh, rebelled against the United States of America during the Civil War, not only did they form their own governments and, and form their own armies, but they also formed their own currency. And, and the reason for that was because the, the northerners, those pesky northerners, came down and took all our treasuries and stole all our coins. And so we were forced to uh, make up our own currency system. But the problem was it was a type of fiat money. So in other words, it wasn't based upon any real value. There was no silver or gold backing up these dollar bills of any kind. In fact, uh, if you look on the back side of Confederate money, there would always be this uh, in- inscription that would read something of this nature, that uh, the, the bearer of this note would be paid the full value of this bill six months after the ratification of the treaty between the United States and the Confederate States of America. That's what it said originally. But then after a couple years passed, they would say two years later, four years later, and it kept getting farther and farther out to the point where uh, you knew that what you had was basically an IOU, was not any type of real currency. In fact, none of those uh, Confederate bills could ever be exchanged for coinage of any kind. It wasn't considered to be real tender in that sense, but really more of an IOU. So as the war dragged on, you can imagine uh, it became much more concerning, anyone who held the bills. Originally, when the bills were first printed uh, in, in 1861, the, the rate of exchange was basically 95 cents t- uh, for a Confederate dollar compared to a U.S. dollar. But then by 1863, it went down to 33 cents to a U.S. dollar. 
And toward the end of the war, it got down to two cents. Um, and the reason for that was uh, uh, multifold. One was the fact that they uh, put no limits upon who could print the money. So each state started printing these Confederate bills. And so the rate of inflation just kept getting higher and higher the more bills that were printed. And when the Northerners realized how easy it was to counterfeit, again, those pesky Northerners began to come down the South with forgery bills and started giving them to the local Southerners and buying whatever they wanted. And they had to take it. It was considered, in their mind, real money, even though it wasn't. And so by the end of the war, literally anyone who was left holding these banknotes went bankrupt because they had nothing to share, nothing that they really owned, nothing of real value. Now, why do I share all this with you? Other than the fact that I'm a Southerner who loves history. The main point of our passage in 2 Corinthians this morning deals with this concept of sinful human beings who have rebelled against God's sovereign kingdom and have been on the losing side of the war, if you will. And we have all, in some sense or another, bought into this rival kingdom. We have, uh, might, might call it the domain of darkness. We all have followed this rebellious leader into a corrupt government that has given us a bunch of IOUs that are worth nothing. And we've bought into it fully, and our sin and our misery that has come along with it, we can see that very clearly. But now that the battle is over, because that's what a big part of the gospel teaches us, that the war has already been won, we're now left standing with this currency that's absolutely worthless and a pile of debts that we could never repay. And with only this fearful expectation of a day of reckoning in which we can't make any reparations that would be pleasing to God. It would be impossible for us to do so. So with that being the case, what hope is there for a sinner who has rebelled against his rightful king? What hope is there for someone who has rebelled against his maker? And that's what makes this such a wonderful passage this morning. Because what we're looking at is describing in in detail this great exchange that takes place that God initiates in which God reconciles us to himself by paying the debts for us through the blood of his own son. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But in these few short verses, there are two words that are used again and again. The words reconcile and the words reconciliation. Five times in these short verses to show that this is really the center stage for Paul about what he understands the gospel to mean. It's a gospel of reconciliation. And so the substance of his message that he's preaching to the Corinthians, the substance of the message that he preaches to all the churches uh, throughout the Roman Empire is this idea that you can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so if you're a kid this morning and you're trying to figure out what are my points, where is the pastor going with this, I'm going to tell you in advance, here are the two points. Look at the title of the sermon, you will find my two points. The message and the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? What is the message of reconciliation? And what is the ministry of reconciliation? So let's look at the message first. What does Paul mean when he refers to the gospel as the message of reconciliation? Well, in terms of relationships, reconciliation is something that takes place between two enemies, right? Or at least two groups of people that are at odds with one another, perhaps even at war with one another. In the English language, it literally means to bring two parties back together again through some sort of pact, through some sort of truce. Something is, is, is causing the hostility to end and trust and love to begin, if you will. 
But the word reconciliation also is used in the terms of accounting, uh, in the sense that somehow the numbers are wrong, somehow the figures don't add up. One thing says this, another says this. So someone has to go and investigate what's the cause of this discrepancy and what do we need to do to make the monetary adjustments to make sure that there's a resolution, there's a reconciliation of these differences. Well, the, the Greek language, when the word that is used here for reconciliation has those same two meanings behind it, but the original way in which the word reconciliation in the Greek was used was in terms of an exchange of coins. So when we think of uh, going to another country and having to exchange currency, this was what the word reconciliation referred to. So that somehow there had to be peace between two countries. They both recognized that their, their currency was valid and somewhat profitable, and they also determined that there had to be an adjustment depending upon which country's coinage was more valuable, which one had the most gold, if you will. Well, the word for reconciliation as it's, as it's used in, in this terms is, is the same word uh, that would often be used by the money changers that Jesus kicked out of the temple complex. You remember those guys? Uh, they normally weren't that hated. Uh, their job itself was not a bad thing. They were actually helping God's people to offer proper sacrifices unto God. Since they couldn't bring many of their animals with them, they would get to Jerusalem, and then they would purchase an animal of sacrifice using whatever uh, monetary exchange they had at the time or whatever type of bartering they could do. The problem was they were trying to do this in the temple complex, the very court where the Gentiles were supposed to be praying. And that's why Jesus kicked them out, not because their job was a bad job, if you will. In fact, the reason why Jesus comes to the temple in the first place is because he intends to do a much greater exchange between two different peoples than anything that these money changers could ever do. He's coming to bring them eternal forgiveness of sins in a way that they can never buy with gold or silver or any animal, but that he would finally put an end to the hostility between God and and men, based upon the blood of his own son. So going back to the original analogy of the national currency, I think I shared with you before, uh, if you haven't heard this before, I was a millionaire at one time. I've shared this a couple times, I think. Uh, I was a millionaire for about a week or two when I went to Indonesia, because anyone who has about 100 bucks is automatically a millionaire in rupees when you go to the country of Indonesia. It's the second lowest rated currency in the world. I think v Vietnam may be the first one. But if you want to really be a rich man, go to one of these countries because all of a sudden you're carrying around wads and wads of cash. The only problem is it costs about a couple hundred thousand dollars to buy some bread because the money is so useless, you know, in that sense. But you feel pretty good at first when you're like, i got a million of these guys. But even the coinage, it's, it's ridiculous how, how little it's actually worth. Um, it, it feels like play money when you pick up any coinage. Think of it this way. One penny is worth 1,400 rupees. That's a lot of coins to equal one penny. And because the, the, the worth of the penny is not worth, uh, worth of their kind of penny quarter concept, is not worth anything, they can't even stamp it on any fake metal. They have to stamp it on plastic. It feels like fake money. It's worthless, absolutely worthless to anyone who actually sees it and holds it in their hands. And, and that's sort of what I want you to understand in some sense is that any spiritual currency that you might think that you have is absolutely worthless in God's eyes because your money is worthless. Your works are worthless. Nothing that you can do or ever 
accomplish or even try to please God with, he's ever going to accept. Because you have not done it for his name. You have not done it as a member of his kingdom. You have done it as a rebel to his rightful reign. And God does not accept any form of reconciliation in which the loser, if you will, of the battle is seeking to win the victor over to his side. It never works that way. In any ancient war, in any ancient battle, it's always the victor who sets the terms of peace. It's not the loser. He has no, nothing to stand on. He can't, he can't demand that the winner gives him what he wants. It's always the one who has won the victory that determines the terms of peace. So since we're utterly incapable of offering to God anything that would appease him, God himself must initiate this reconciliation, these terms of peace. Um, and we see this over and over again. The, the Roman army, every time they defeated an enemy, uh, they wouldn't even recognize any opposing government. And if they tried to buy them off, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even listen to them. In fact, there are a couple of am- examples even in the Old Testament uh, one comes to mind when King Hezekiah, if you remember, had rebelled against the, the king of Assyria. And when Assyria started coming after him, he started stripping the gold off the temple walls to try to buy him off. And the king of Assyria said, I'm not going to take that. You can't buy me off. I'm the one who determines the terms of peace. And you have to surrender completely and submit to me again like you ought to. And then maybe we'll have peace. But it's, it's not the other way around. And so it's the same way with God. God does not and cannot accept any terms of peace from a rebel to his kingdom. He is the only one that can initiate this. But the good news is his terms are so full of grace and mercy that it overwhelms you when you actually get it, when you understand this reconciliation. I mean, it leaves you with your mouth hanging wide open because it doesn't make sense that the winner would not require so much reparations, if you will, from the loser. In fact, he's the one who pays all that is owed. And so, if you look closely at verse 21, here's where Paul really breaks this down. Um, Very famous verse, he says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, one of the first things that ought to stick out to you in this verse is simply this, the part where Paul says that Jesus knew no sin. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't understand what sin was, that he didn't get it in that sense. Um, Obviously, Jesus talked about sin all the time. He was preaching about the nature of sin, its power, its devastating consequences, but that's not what he means. The Greek word that's used for knowledge here is an experiential knowledge. In other words, Jesus never experienced sin sin. He never felt sin because it wasn't a part of his nature. It wasn't a part of his actions, his being, if you will. He never desired it. He never entered into it. He never felt that guilt and shame that each one of us have felt again and again. Never knew sin in that way. Unlike the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, if you remember a very important passage in Romans 7, it's very confusing at times, but at the same time, Paul is saying, through the law, he personally came to know sin. In other words, he came to experience it for himself through the law. Because he says, the minute the law said to me, do not covet, what happened? (laughs) I wanted to covet. I wanted sin. 
I wanted to break God's law. I wanted to overthrow his kingdom, if you will. But not so with Jesus, because he was born of God and born of a virgin. He didn't inherit our sin nature. Not once did he desire sin. Not once did he ever enter into sinful temptation, even though it was presented to him many times. It wasn't something that he ever experienced in that case. Uh, we know a couple of other passages that make this very plain. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the apostle says that Jesus committed no sin, and neither was there deceit ever found in his mouth, which is saying quite a bit. But Paul is saying even more here, not just merely the fact that Jesus never committed a sin or ever spoke sin, but he never even wanted it, never even desired it, had no concept of what that sinful experience is like. He never new sin. And yet God takes this perfect man who knew no sin and made him to be sin for our sake. Now what does he mean by that? He's not saying, note very carefully, he's not saying that he made him to be a sinner because a sinner implies that Jesus then sinned. That's not the case. That's not what he's saying. Rather he means that he made him to be the sin offering, if you will, made him to be the lamb or the goat upon which the priest would pray and, and put their hands on it to represent their sin going into the animal, if you will, and then the animal bearing the consequences of their sin so that when Jesus is on the cross, he's bearing our sin even though he has not sinned. He's identifying with us in order that he might be condemned by God and bear the weight of God's holy wrath that we deserve. He became sin in order that we might receive righteousness. Think of it this way. For the three hours that Jesus was on the cross, if you remember, it was complete darkness. This is a sign of God's judgment. It was during this time that Jesus quoted from the psalmist, if you remember, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Because in that moment... Jesus is experiencing what David experienced and what we all experience of being separated from God because of sin. But instead of just having one sin that we've committed and felt that sin and guilt, wave upon wave of experiencing the consequences of sin are falling upon Christ again and again and again. And he's crying out in agony and desperation because he's receiving what is due to us because of our sin. But that's just the beginning of God's terms of peace to rebellious sinners because after that, he not only punishes his own sin for our rebellion, but he also makes a different type of exchange. The Scripture says that he makes us to be righteous in his sight. So in the same way that you could say that Jesus never knew sin, you could say the exact same thing about us in this sense, we never knew righteousness. Not once did any of us ever commit a righteous act in God's sight. Not once. Not once did we ever speak a truly righteous word to our neighbor. Not once. Not once did we ever have a sliver of a righteous desire. Scripture makes this very plain. This isn't just somewhat true. It's absolutely true. We see this again and again. Romans 3 is probably the most prominent passage that explains this. Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and he says this very plainly, emphatically, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands righteousness. 
No one seeks for God. All of us have turned aside. Together we have all become worthless. Think play money here. Worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says this is true of every single one of us. We knew no righteousness. None. And yet God makes us righteous. He makes us experience the righteousness that Jesus deserves, that we might experience the joy of the Lord and have wave upon wave of love from God the Father instead of his hot anger because of our sin. Toward the point where anyone who walks in the Spirit knows the blessed assurance of God's love because he gets it again and again. Was his grace upon grace abounding to you? Do these seem like terms of peace to you? <laughs> to a defeated enemy? Does this seem right? Not once do you see any aspect of a reparation that has to be made by us or any punishment that has to be endured by us. If, if you remember when a crowd came to Jesus near the Sea of Galilee, and they were basically asking what they must do to be saved. They said, what works must we do? What does Jesus say to them? The only work that God requires of you is to believe in his Son. You want to know what you need to do? Believe in his Son. So Jesus is saying, believe in me. Believe in my righteousness. Believe in my righteous work that has been accomplished and what I've done for you on the cross. It's not a matter of doing anything to be reconciled with God. It's a matter of believing in what God has already done through his Son. Notice at no point does Paul ever tell people in this passage, reconcile yourself to God. He never says that. He always says, in a passive sense, be reconciled to God. Because he's already brought the terms of reconciliation. He's already accomplished the way of peace. There's nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already own. There's no work that we could perform that he would accept. The only thing that he desires from us in order to make peace with him is to believe in his son and submit to his son as our rightful king. Crown him the unrivaled king is what we kept singing, right? Crown him unrivaled king. Believe in that one you'll be reconciled to God. doesn't seem so hard <laughs> if we don't want to die to ourselves. But the problem is if you reject these terms of reconciliation, where does that leave you? God is still at war. And he'll be at war with you all the days of your life until finally he pours out his hot wrath upon you in a day of reckoning. Because there's nothing that you can offer him. He has made a way. All you have to do is believe. But for those who do accept these terms, I mean, it's wonderful. You, you, you trust in Christ. Not only does he make you his friend, invite you to come to his table and eat with him regularly, but he also makes you his ambassador. And this leads us to the second point of the sermon, the ministry of reconciliation. 
Like any other aspect of ministry, this particular ministry is marked out by service. The word that's used in the Greek is actually the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. But instead of serving, you know, particularly maybe some of the widows in the church or serving in some other aspect in the life of the church, he's saying we all are called to the service of reconciliation. And our job primarily in this service is to tell other rebels the terms of peace that God has made. That's it. Look in verse 20. There Paul says, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ. So what's an ambassador? Ancient times, the Roman emperor would never go out himself to make terms of peace with any nation that he's conquered. He always would send out an ambassador. He would send out generally an older man. In fact, the word that's used in the Greek looks like the word uh, presbyter, which means an elder man. Uh, but it's, it's the idea that someone who has wisdom, someone who is, uh, has authority of some sense that can represent the person uh, that he's making peace on behalf of. And in this case, the man that was called could not make any decisions on his own. He was only to say what the emperor had said. He was only to agree to what the emperor had agreed to. So it was always the emperor's terms, if you will. In the same way, when God calls us to be his ambassadors, we're not making these things up to tell others about Christ. We're telling them what Christ has done, what he has said, what we have been told to say in that regard. And so Paul sees all followers of Christ being sent out with explicit commands to go and tell others the terms of peace, using his words primarily. And in fact, uh, the way it's phrased here in the text, he makes it sound like God himself is actually the one making the appeal, but he's making it through us. As ambassadors, we are representing his words, his heart, his desire. I was uh, sharing with a, a couple guys this week a little bit more about Dawson Trotman I had shared with you uh, last week about uh, the founder of the Navigator's Ministry. And I was, I was sharing with them how he actually came to faith in Christ. Um, he, he had gotten in trouble with the law. He was bootlegging liquor and uh, tried to make some amends. And he went to this Christian meeting just to like, do his penance, if you will, because of getting caught. And while he was there, he saw a very attractive young lady. And uh, that particular week, the teachers of this Christian meeting were challenging the students to memorize 10 scripture verses. And at the end of the week, anyone who had done that would get a prize. So he memorized the 10 verses to impress the young lady. And she seemed pleased, so he did it again next week and learned another 10 verses. So he thought, well, you know, we'll see what comes of this. But by the end of the second week, as he was going to work... One of the verses stuck out in his mind, and it kept convicting him of his sin and telling him the way of salvation. So the Word of God just planted in his mind and in his heart led him to confess his sin and to pray to Christ to be received, to be delivered of his sin. And he was saved. Now, I imagine there are a few people that perhaps you know that have come to faith in a similar way. Somehow they just got a copy of God's word, and they just opened it up, and they turned to something, and boom, they're saved, right? It does happen that way. But I bet if I take a survey of the congregation right now, and I were to ask you, who in here came to faith in Christ because someone acted like an ambassador and told them about the gospel of Christ? Raise your hand if someone told you the gospel. 
Many of you probably had a number of people that told you over time, right? And you probably didn't listen for the longest of times, but somehow eventually it clicked and it made sense to you and that you trusted in Christ. But the normal way in which people come to faith in Christ is through another ambassador who has told them God's terms of peace. And they're usually pretty happy to tell you about it because they're excited that God has saved them and wants to share that with you as well. So certainly this is, uh, this is the norm. And it's the same ministry that he calls us to as Christians today. We, we're, we're, we're called not just to be friends of God, but even ambassadors for God to tell others about Christ. It's interesting, another uh, facet about Dawson Trotman. Uh, he, after he got saved, he, he kind of liked this whole Scripture memory thing. And so he memorized a thousand verses in his first thousand days of being a Christian. A verse a day. A thousand verses. I was trying to rack up in my mind how many verses I probably have memorized. It might be around 150. So I got to get to work, apparently. A thousand. But then it dawned upon me do you think that he was a more effective evangelist as a result of knowing that much scripture? Do you think it would have hurt him in any way? Hindered him from telling others about Christ? He led 250 people to Christ in his first two years of being a Christian. Do you think any of that had to do with the fact that he was just ready to share something with someone because the Word of God was just filling his heart, filling his mind? He was overflowing with God's Word and had to let it out, right? You you remember Jeremiah the prophet. It's like a fire deep down in my soul. I have to let it out. And in fact, it's interesting that later in his life, he began to ask people a couple questions. One of those questions was this. Very pointedly, very direct man. He, I think he would have scared most of us. <laughs> but he would ask anyone that he met that got to know a little bit at, at all. He would say, how many persons do you know by name today that were won by Christ, won to Christ by you, and are still living for him today? He says, how many persons... Do you know by name that you've led to Christ? And then he would say, if they responded, uh, nobody, which was a common response for a lot of Christians, he'd then have a follow-up list of questions. He would say, what's the reason for that, you think? Is it some sin that you're not willing to overcome? Is it some immaturity on your part? You haven't grown up in your faith? Is it the fact that you're just lacking fellowship with God? One of the, the other main questions he would ask other than evangelism is, how is your devotional life? He would ask very pointedly. I don't know anybody. And he would say, what I found is that the majority of people that never lead anyone to Christ, they have yet to have a common devotion on a daily basis. They don't seek the Lord. And so when they meet people who don't know the Lord, they're not ready to talk to them about the Lord because they're not talking to God. If you don't talk to God, you can't talk to people about God, right? It doesn't work that way. There has to be something that's living within you that causes life to come from you. But then finally he would say to them after he gave that little talk, he would say, what would it take to jar you out of your complacency and to send you home praying, God, give me just one person, one man, one woman that I can talk to about Christ and that maybe 
you would give me the fruitfulness of seeing that person come to faith in Christ. He said, what would it take for you to get to that point? Because he firmly believed that God had called all of us to be ambassadors for Christ, that none of us should be fruitless in our faith. It's interesting, I remember as a young boy, um, I was a part of a group that was actually called the Royal Ambassadors, similar to Cub Scouts, if you will, but the Christian version of it. Anybody here a Royal Ambassador as a kid? Anybody? Just me, that's what I thought. Um, I think it was a Baptist thing. I don't know if it went to other denominations, but I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And uh, Anyway, we had to take a pledge. I think I had to hold up three fingers or two fingers, I can't remember, but I was you know, like seven and eight or whatever it was. And uh, the, the whole theme of the royal ambassadors was based upon this very passage. And, of course, I had no idea that's what it was about at all. Um, in fact, the strangest thing about being a royal ambassador was the fact that we had to take this pledge, and the pledge basically promised that we would live for Christ, that we would carry the message of Christ around the world, and that we would dedicate ourselves to sharing Christ with others. But at the time, I and I'm pretty sure every other boy in that class weren't even saved ourselves. And thinking, how in the world could I share Christ with someone else when I don't even know who Christ is? How often does that happen in Sunday school classes? How often does that happen in Bible studies? How often does that happen in, in your normal relationships where you're with people and everybody calls themselves Christian, but they really don't get it sometimes? You'd be surprised how many people you could talk to about Christ that they think they're already Christians, but they've just sort of been loosely connected to the church in some way and really don't get it. Before finding some stranger that you've never met on the side of the street and, and confronting them with the gospel, maybe try some people who already call themselves Christians and see what happens. You'd be surprised. There are always some that, that get a little bit of it, but not quite. When you ask them sort of those uh, diagnostic questions, you know, why do you think you're going to heaven? Some will still say something like this. They'll still say, well, I try to be a good person. No. <laughs> Wrong. God won't take that. It's play money to him. He doesn't care. They don't get the gospel. Talk to your, your fellow Christians about the gospel. I promise you it will make you more effective at talking to non-Christians about the gospel because you get used to it. You like it, something that you sort of enjoy, and you begin to share it more. But only if, again, you get the gospel yourself. But sometimes, as, even as believers, we may get into a funk. You know what that's like, right? I'm not the only one who's ever gotten to funk spiritually. Meaning that at some point in your life you get to the point where, you know, it's, it's just not as important as it used to be, and you, you, you forget, and, and you start pursuing other things in life. And, and more than likely, usually it's because of some sin that led us astray. It could be other reasons as well. But um, there's a passage in Psalm 51 where David is, it's a prayer of repentance, right? And uh, he, he's crying out to God, what, what does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Right? and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Return to me the joy of your salvation. But then he says, why? It's interesting. He has this follow-up to it. He says, because then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then sinners will return to you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that if you're walking with God and you're walking in the joy of the Lord, do you think that he'll give you opportunities to talk to sinners? <laughs> Do you think that he'll give you opportunities perhaps even to reap some fruit from those conversations? Seems like David is saying that's the case. But if we're not 
dealing with our sin. We're letting it fester within us, and we're not seeking God. We're not having daily devotions. We're not doing those things. Then what do you expect? We're not going to have a whole lot of opportunities. We're not going to be looking for them. And when they come right in front of our face, we're going to walk the other way. That's what happens. Because we're not ready, you see. But those who have been forgiven much, what? They love much. They want to share that love, that joy with others. That's what happens. And it doesn't even matter how good you are at it. You could be horrible at it. The, the people that, the, that I have led to Christ often have been my worst evangelistic attempts. I've told you this before. It doesn't matter. God's working in their heart. They get something from what you say. I, I, I tell you this. I, how many words have I spent just now? How many of them are you going to remember five minutes from now? Be honest. You're going to go home and go to lunch. What was he talking about? Weren't we in Genesis? I, mean, I, I literally had people told me that afterwards. I'm like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. That's all there is to it. So am I. So am I. We do. We, we, we so quickly forget. Yet God still uses that somehow. If he uses this, he can use you. How is it any different? Right? He can use you in the same way. In fact, uh, can I quote Dawson Trotman one more time? I, I'm just loving this guy. But I read his biography. I can't help it. So, um, Anyway, uh, he was sharing the story of a, of a blind, crippled man that he knew. I think he lived somewhere in New York City area. And you would think, based upon his condition, that he would like, you know, he'd have a lot of excuses not to, like, witness to people, you know, because he's got a, got a lot of problems going on. And uh, anyway, he, he shared how this guy would get on the subway, and everybody's always trying to help the guy who's blind and crippled, right? I mean, you can't help it. Like, can I help you? You know, you feel pain just watching him get on the subway. And he'd be like, absolutely. And, but instead of, like, helping him get onto the bus or whatever, he's like, hold on just a minute. Let me sit down. He's like, can you read the Bible to me? And he's like, turn to John. He's like, where's John? What? Well, go to the... You know, he'd, like, tell them without showing them. They'd read chapter 3 of John. He'd tell them about that. They'd read the gospel to themselves. He said, what do you think that means? Other times, he'd mix it up a little bit, and he'd start telling them. He's like, they'd ask, do you need help? He's like, yes, I'm trying to memorize these scripture verses. Can you help me with my scripture verses? And like, okay. And of course, all the scripture verses would be how to lead someone to Christ. (laughs) And they're reading the verses that they need to understand the gospel. And you're like, what do you think that means? You'd be surprised. What a weak, frail Christian can do. Paul uses a very emotionally charged language, verse 20. He says, I implore you, be reconciled to God. There's no other way. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I implore you, hear these words. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's like the painting in the House of Interpreter in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Everyone here has read that book now, I'm hoping? I ask every time. Pilgrim's Progress, number one best-selling book for hundreds of years after the Bible. In that book, there's a scene in which Christian goes into this house of interpretation, if you will, and uh, sees a bunch of things, and then these things are interpreted to, for him. Christian sees a painting of a godly man on the wall, and he's a very serious person in his faith. Uh, he has his eyes lifted up to heaven. He's got the best of books in his hands, so the Bible's in his hands. He's got the law of truth, the, the, the truth of God upon his lips. He's got, there's a picture of the world behind his back. He's turned his back on the world, right? 
And then he's got his hands out pleading with men. Be reconciled to God. And this is an image that that Bunyan is is portraying the average pastor, if you will. This is what he is. But, But Paul is saying, that's a picture of all of us. We all are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Not just the preacher behind this big wooden pulpit. You, the, the, the pulpit has no magical powers, by the way. There's nothing about it special whatsoever. But it, it helps me not to fall over when I talk. You don't need a pulpit. You need to know the message of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. You need to know the joy of the Lord. And then pray. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities. You don't need an evangelistic program. We don't have to train you for months and months and months to do this. If you want to know how to do it better, ask me. I'm happy to share some scripture verses with you that would be good to memorize, that might give you an an edge in knowing what to say. But you're just talking to people that that you know. You're telling them what you know, and you're excited to tell it. That's the normal way in which the gospel is shared. That's the normal way in which people come to faith in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us as we seek to be the ambassadors that you've called us to be. We pray as well, Father, that you would help us in in whatever ways that we have been hindered from being able to do that and do that well. Uh, We know it doesn't take much for us to stop turning our backs to the world and, and actually going toward the world instead. We know that it doesn't take much for us to get quiet and not want to talk about our faith, but we pray. Lord, like any good salesman, you believe in what you sell. Thankfully, what we sell is free. It's not that hard of a sell. <laughs> we pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to crown you our unrivaled king that we might be able to tell the others the terms of peace. We pray all these things.